are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And now we're going to spend the next 40 minutes or so having a lot of fun. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, the New York Times on their wire cutter newsletter decided to rate all the vanilla ice creams in the world. I won't list them all, but after dozens and dozens of taste tests, guess who they chose? Ben and Jerry's Vanilla. Incredible, right? After all these years, Vermont's vanilla ice cream still rates. We wanted to know why and how that flavor was made. So we called up the guy who so many years ago was responsible for not just vanilla, but my daughter's favorite, chocolate chip cookie dough, not to mention Rainforest Crunch. His name is Peter Lind, and he was the primal ice cream therapist at Ben & Jerry's, along with several other titles, and he is here live in the studio. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm going to be laughing throughout the entire segment. So why why would the New York Times say that after all these years that Ben & Jerry's vanilla is still the best vanilla ice cream in the world? Somebody must have bribed them. <laughs> For sure. Uh, you know, and it's probably because Ben & Jerry's, like many people, um, make really good ice cream. But, you know, when you taste different ice creams, it's uh, not just the ingredients. It's the quantity percentage of ingredients and... Uh, it's not just ingredients, it's the texture. Um, it's not just the texture, it's the cooking method. Uh, there's a lot of different factors. Uh, and of course, <laughs> the vanilla. The vanilla has to be good. Uh, so there are a lot of different factors that go into making ice cream. And Ben and & Jerry's has uh, a really good collection of those qualities. Okay, so before we go back in time to those days, I, they talk about Van Leeuwen's, which is, I think that's a... Uh, it's a local New York. I've had it. It's yeah. good. It's quite good. Yeah, okay. And then, uh, let's see. Uh, then they list all these others, which I refuse to eat. Edie's, Turkey Hill. I mean, I no way. I, 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 will, do a, I will do Haagen-Dazs when pressed. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Haagen-Dazs. They use good ingredients. They use cream. They use milk. They use eggs. They use sugar. Um, yeah. But they're still the doughboy, and I'm not. That's fair. You know. But I think this was done blind. So you may not have been able to dis, you know, decipher between um, the Haagen-Dazs, because you may not have known it was Haagen-Dazs when you were a taster. Ah. That's my sense is this is blind and you're going with what your ideal ice cream is. So that's a lot of texture and it's a, a vanilla that is familiar but distinct um, in its own qualities. And I think, you know, for Ben and Jerry's that comes down to a, a good quality vanilla a Madagascar vanilla, and it, I think, has just a slight alcohol note that uh, the people don't dislike. 
Okay. All right. You know, before we get any further, uh, we'll, we'll take your calls at 244-1777. If you want to talk to the flavor guru uh, of Ben and Jerry's. One uh, of the flavor One of the flavor gurus. gurus from yesteryear. His name is Peter Lind and, uh, he, he invented a lot of these flavors and was in the room when this stuff was being discussed way back in the old days. So our number is 244-1777. You want to talk about your favorite ice cream with the guy who was there? Uh, feel free to give us a call. Can we go back? I mean, you've been a food flavor guy for 30-plus years. Can you take us back in time to the beginning Uh were, you were not there in the gas station. You, I was not there in the gas station. You came a little later. I got there about year eight, nine, um, here in Waterbury at the factory, which was con- in a complete flux. Yeah. Every day there was, you know, new expansions being talked or started or scrapped. And uh, were we still in the Chico Lager days? Or oh, were, totally. We were. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. Chico Lager being the first real CEO of the company, yes. who they, who they, as the story goes, plucked out of running a bar in Burlington to bring some order to the chaos. You know, you got to bring your skill set. Ben and Jerry, if you're out there listening, uh, uh, <laughs> feel free to call in and critique any of the any of the things that we're getting wrong. You know, one of the first jobs I had at Ben and Jerry's was to. Uh, work with a uh, a guy and find out why Ben and Jerry's vanilla ice cream was not selling uh, in two markets, the New York market and the L.A. market. It was not selling as well as Haagen-Dazs. And so uh, I hired a focus group guy, and we looked at this. You know, you look at the profile of the Haagen-Dazs eater and their button down and their, um, you know, their high quality. And you look at the Ben and Jerry's and they're much looser and fun and high quality. Um, and in New York, you know, we tasted a bunch of different vanillas. We tasted the, the Turkey Hill and the Eaties and the, it wasn't Eaties at the time, I don't think, but dryers maybe. Yeah. And, um, you know, we did well, and when we did taste tests, we always did well. Ben and Jerry's uh, vanilla ice cream scored really well. So was it the design of the packaging? or It was partially that Haagen-Dazs had a cachet that, you know, that vanilla ice cream was like the tops. It, it was um, what people were looking for, and the converse was what... Ben and Jerry's people were looking for was chunks. And part of the reason they didn't eat the vanilla ice cream was because they hadn't had it. In fact, when I talked to the sales guy, he goes, what are you up to? I said, well, I'm working on this thing to see why we're not selling vanilla ice cream in L.A. He goes, well, I can tell you that. That's an easy one. I said, you know, the the salesperson knew, but the marketing people didn't talk to the salespeople. Of apparently. course, they it, never do. You know, I said, well, what is it? Why aren't we selling vanilla ice cream in L.A.? He said, well, it's not for sale. <laughs> I, 
I said, it's not for sale. <laughs> Why not? Well, you're only allowed, you know, 10, 10 flavors, and uh, we took our top 10. Well, that's logical. But, you know, then when you look at it, Vanilla. You mean you were not in the distribution funnel? We, you, you know, you say the distribution funnel, but each each grocery store takes different different flavors. Some of them take everything. Some right. of them only took you know ten out of fifteen. And at the time, the vanilla didn't make the cut. Interesting. So um, a lot of people had not tried Ben and Jerry's vanilla ice cream. Now. They had it in, you know, some of the flavors because it was the background flavor. But it's different when you just have vanilla ice cream and you put it on a pie or you, yeah, you just eat it with chocolate sauce. It's, yeah. Well, there's a legendary story to junkies like us that when in the early days when Ben and Jerry's was fighting for shelf space in grocery stores and they couldn't get on the, it's, it's, it's famous that that business. It's famous for uh, what do you call it? Uh, slotting and all that kind of slotting stuff. Slotting fees. Slotting yeah. fees. Yeah. And it took them a while to get on the shelf in the early days. Yeah, it did. I mean, they were so popular regionally that they didn't have to deal with the slotting fees. But you know, outside of New England, people didn't know who they were. Um, so in order to get on a shelf, you have to pay for space. Yeah. And they were like, what? Pay for space? I'm not paying for space. Yeah. I mean, that's the typical way that you get in. Yeah. Um, so of course, you know, you, you got to pay to play and, uh, they learned that it the, took the hard way. Yeah. yeah. And, and they had to pay a mysterious, it, it's a mysterious, uh, business Big, big time grocery. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. you'd pay a guy in the back room. Yeah, in the dark. Of Guido. Night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Before we have to take a break, what goes into making a good vanilla ice cream? Well, you know, obviously milk, cream, eggs, um, the, the sugar. Yeah. Um, you can make a vanilla ice cream without eggs. Uh, you can make a vanilla ice cream without a lot of cream. But you really, you know, you, those help you quite a bit in terms of flavor. So, yeah, right. you want those. And what went into it going back when you first arrived at the company? When you arrived, what did you discover? Uh, what did I discover? Um, was everything in perfect condition and, and uh, no changes need to be made and all you had to do was sort of sit at the desk or was it chaos and, you know, what was going on nine years in? It was uh, it was moving along pretty well. Um, you know, that they had hired a good manufacturer people so that they made the product consistently. And that's what you really want in an ice in any food product. You want it to be made consistently. And not to say that there weren't a lot of tweaks along the way, but they manufacturing did a really great job of making the ice cream consistently and you know, making the uh, the formulation 
consistently getting the exact butterfat levels and the sugar levels so that, you know, pint to pint, everybody tasted the same Ben & Jerry's ice cream. The, the early days were crazy. When I first got there... The, I don't even have to ask the question. Just keep no, going. This no, is you know, perfect. When I, when I first got there, <laughs> there, I had no desk and I had no lab. And, and I said, well, where do you want me? And they said, well, there's a, a little uh, counter space in the quality assurance uh, area. And we've got a little uh, one-quart ice cream machine in there. And you can do some experiments and, and, and uh, put them into containers and uh, and then we have a freezer out in, on the production floor and I said oh, okay and so I would busily for like two weeks straight I would make all these different flavors um, and then I'd you know put them in this big freezer out in production and you know come in and uh, the people in production had hosed down everything in production including the wires on the back of the Freezer, and so everything in the freezer had melted down. So all of my work happened about four times. I made stuff for weeks. I was ready to show everybody, and it, there was nothing to show. Uh, it, that's how uh, it was fairly confusing in the beginning. How did you get there? Oh, I got uh, there. You, yeah, you so didn't, coming out of college, you don't no, major so I, I, in uh, <laughs> ice cream flavor. No, you don't. I. Um, I became a – I was a French major, and, and then I went into French cooking, and then I went into French baking, uh, pastry, and um, croissant, and Danish. And, uh, and then uh, Ben & Jerry's was uh, – had an ad in the paper. They were looking for someone that liked to play with their food and could keep good records. And, and, and I figured I could learn how to keep the good records. I like playing with food. And, and a, more than one person actually contacted me and said, hey, this is the right job for you. So I applied, as did a 100 other people in the area, and I didn't get the job. As it turns out, uh, somebody in-house was hired, which is fair, um, yeah. as well it should be. And, uh, and that person then ended up moving to Wisconsin or something a couple months later, and they opened it back up. But this time, they uh, took the top three candidates, which I was happy to have made, and they said, hey, uh, what we'd like you to do is write a little essay on what you would do uh, if you were hired as the Ben & Jerry's uh, flavor guy, uh, flavor development guy. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. So I, I presented this paper saying that I would like um, a recreational vehicle that was all tricked out with, a, with the kitchen, had everything needed in the kitchen. And um, I would drive around to ethnic neighborhoods all over the country and check out their desserts that I would then translate into ice cream. And all I wanted on top of that was a chauffeur and a new pair of sneakers. And I got the job. <laughs> did you get the van and the chauffeur? I never got the van. I got the sneakers. I, I did get the sneakers eventually. They were metal tipped. 
but but they sort of felt like sneakers. Right. <laughs> okay, we have a couple of uh, people calling in. So Tom from Washington, thanks for waiting. You're on the line. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm really pleased to be able to send you this question because I think I think I agree that Ben and Jerry's vanilla ice cream is really a superb product. It's really hard to find in stores. Instead, you get all this stuff that's mixed in with flour dough and is sort of half ice cream and half uncooked pastry. But here's my question. I think, for me, the absolute penultimate best Ben & Jerry product was the full Vermonti. It came on the market, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. It lasted for about six months, and it was absolutely the best ice cream I've ever had that had stuff in it. And... I want to know how do you thought this up and why, and you were probably there when it got killed and why it got killed because I think this is the best ice cream Ben and Jerry's has ever made. Wow. Thank you for the call. Uh, it's a really good question and I'm going to be, um, honest. I was not there when it was made. I was not there when it got killed and I have no idea what is in it. <laughs> I've never had the full Vermonti flavor. I, th I think it had maple syrup or something in it. But uh, I, I'm, I apologize. But you know, things moved fast, and I uh, I actually was um, teaching at the Culinary Institute in Montpelier when that flavor came out, and was making enough ice cream in the uh, back back kitchens of the restaurants at New England Culinary Institute that I unfortunately didn't try that flavor. That's where you came from, was Necky in Montpelier. That's right. I I, I taught um, pastry and uh, food theory and uh, new product development at Necky. I got to ask you, though, you say you answered an ad in the paper. We don't do that anymore. What paper are you referring to? It, it was to? actually, I think it was the um, uh, the Burlington Free Press. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, it's like the famous uh, ad that Bruce Springsteen put in the Village Voice advertising for a drummer uh, when he got Max Weinberg, and it said, no ginger bakers need apply. <laughs> um, and they, it was a tiny little ad in, in, a, in the Village Voice. So you answered the ad and yep. eventually got the job. And eventually got the job, yeah. Okay, Mary, our old friend in Randolph Center, uh, you're on the line with Peter Lind. Welcome. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Peter. Now I want to eat ice cream for breakfast. Hey, that's a good uh -huh. idea. <laughs> that's a good idea. So my favorite Ben and Jerry's is Cherry Garcia. Love, love, love it. And Chubby Hubby. Yep. Um, and I guess I could go on. But those are my kind of top two go-to. My son-in-law um, also loves Graders. It's a raspberry. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah, with a, a soft chocolate chunk that's... Yeah, uh, I, they do that. Yeah, so, you know, um, uh, the uh, stuff that you... Like the chocolate that is... On a uh, a dipped bar, that that chocolate. Um, yeah. They put that kind of chocolate into uh -huh. the graters so that it's kind of uh, chewy, hard, but soft at the mm. same time. It's I, I, I when I went to Cincinnati, I had some reason to go there. I was taking a class at at um, 
I can't remember, but um, I went immediately to Grater's and had the raspberry <laughs> chocolate uh, chip or chocolate chunk and delightful, great textured chocolate. Yes. Totally. And it's hard to find. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that they distribute outside of Ohio very much. Um, no. No. But, you know, the fir- one of the first projects I had uh, – at Ben and Jerry's was to take the bugs out of Cherry Garcia. Uh, it's a little known fact that there were bugs in Cherry Garcia. I know it sounds disgusting, but in fact, the coloring, um, in order to get the cherries to all look uniformly red, they add a little extra oomph of color so that they all look like the same cherries from the same tree. <laughs> and, so in this situation, uh, for years, they were using a cherry that had a little cochineal in it. And cochineal is a beetle, a beetle wing that is used to dye Navajo rugs red. Um, oh. And, and well, they found out, <laughs> not surprisingly, that if you use beetle wings in a dairy product, that could not be called kosher because you can't have meat and dairy in the same product. So my first one of my first jobs was to take those bugs out. Of course, there are no bugs in in Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia anymore. How, how did you do that? How did you remove the bugs? Uh, I, I tried some other things like raspberry. What a nice color raspberry is. And... Uh, Red cabbage and other things that, yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. Uh, chocolate chip cookie dough, chubby hubby, wavy gravy, rainforest crunch. Uh, what what came first? Talk. Take us back to those days. It must have been chocolate chaotic. Chip, chocolate chip cookie dough was probably the first one, and you know, and to be honest, I'm the stepfather of chocolate chip cookie dough. I'm not the father, but I did send it to graduate school. I, I mean, I sent it to get its PhD. Yeah. Uh, somebody in the downtown Burlington scoop shop where they made ice cream in the small two-gallon um, mixer, uh, freezer, uh, had thrown a little bit of cookie dough into the ice cream one time and they were like, whoa, this is good and yeah, it was but they could not figure out how to make more than two gallons at a time Um, and so when I first got there, I I looked at taking big blocks of cookie dough, literally like block 40 pound blocks of cheese we made 40 pound blocks of cookie dough. And then I used a big cheese knife and cut those chunks into little squares, little cubes of cookie dough. And we put them into this 10-gallon machine, the Emery Thompson freezer in the Waterbury production floor. And okay, so we could now make product for five scoop shops in the area, but we still couldn't make it for people in pints. So the the whole idea was, well, how do we get it into pints? And I I thought, well, maybe there's a way that I could 
like reverse engineer the cookie dough chunk so that it was like cookie dough on the inside and a shell of chocolate on the outside so that it was like a chocolate-covered cookie dough. And then that wouldn't um, gum up the works when was put into pints, like when the, the pint-making process for making ice cream. So I tried that, uh, and it didn't work. Uh, it gummed up the works almost immediately because inside that thin shell of chocolate, the cookie dough is soft. And then I thought, well, maybe I need to change the ingredients to cookie dough. So I tried making it with milk powder and different flours and different sugars, and that didn't work. Um, And then I thought, well, maybe... Uh, if I freeze it, freeze the cookie dough pieces and add it to the ice cream in the fruit feeder, it might work. I wanted the ice cream to like run smoothly. And what happens is without a visual here, you've got a little machine that churns in little pieces of, of it's called a fruit feeder. So, Typically, you put fruit into this machine, and it churns the fruit into the ice cream that's already frozen, and then it kind of freezes into that ice cream and then gets put into the containers. So I thought, well, I can put the cookie dough in that way, but I want it super hard because previously when I put it into the fruit feeder, it just gummed up the works. So I said, well, it has to be frozen to, like, on dry ice. Well, dry ice is like, I don't know what it is, 300 degrees below zero or something. Right. As soon as I put the cookie dough that had been frozen on dry ice into the fruit feeder, it worked like like a charm for about a minute and a half. (laughs) And then it froze the whole machine so that nothing worked. It was like... Man, I can't win here. Oh, gosh. So that's what happened for about six months, those kinds of things. It was a, it was touch and go, touch and go. We're going to come back with Flavor Master at Ben & Jerry's, Peter Lind. Uh, we're going to ask him after we come back. Uh, he had another title, Grand Poobah of the Joy Gang. Can you please explain yourself? Sure. I was a co-Grand Poobah. With Jerry Greenfield of Ben and Jerry's, yeah. um, the idea was that people are working hard. Um, they get caught up in the, the work day, the work week, the work month, and suddenly, you know, all kinds of time has gone by, and you really um, you've had a, a productive time, but are you enjoying working uh, on a regular basis? So the idea was to sort of infuse the workplace with some regular joy, joyous occasions or joyous um, activities. Uh, you know, we had, uh, partially because of Chico Lager, we did a, a, an Elvis day. Everyone dressed as Elvis, and, um, and, and we had a good time. Um, that was the kind of thing that we did, 
and and we would try to make the whole the whole community of workers feel good. The problem was that those who were in production uh, could not partake as regularly, right. and so immediately it became somewhat problematic. Um, as it turns out, that you know one of the things that really was appreciated there was to have some nice meals, to have barbecues, to have, you know, just to break things up. And so we would bring bring people in, we'd bring speakers in. Uh, Mr. Clean came in to talk to people about how to keep the place clean. Of course, another Chico lager thing. And I think we had Mr. T, too, to no kidding. You know, enforce things. You know, because right. you want to have people with some clout <laughs> right. and some humor. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, that was how many years ago? Oh, that was 30 years ago, yeah. So the world is. 33, yeah. So the world has changed dramatically since then. We were talking off air about sourcing products, uh, yeah. in sus- as sustainable way as you can, as you could. Uh, beans from here, milk from here, uh, right. sugar from here. Bef- that you were doing that before it was cool. I know now it's very cool to get your coffee beans from where from a, a local farmer, but right. in Colombia. But you were doing that. How was that hard back then? It, there wasn't a uh, it wasn't kind of a, a prescribed method to do it. We were in sort of an exploratory phase. I mean, when I think it was ninety one or two, we went down to Mexico. Uh, Kind of almost on an expedition looking for coffee from a sustainable source that um, we could support a group of growers much more directly. Um, and that had not been done on a regular basis. I'm sure it had been done on a super small basis. But um, yeah, so that they, there wasn't a, a, a turnkey way to do it yet. You had to try to figure it out. Uh, take us back again. Was there – what was your biggest failure? You know, an experiment gone horribly wrong. Uh, I will tell you, <laughs> one of the biggest experiments that went wrong was uh, involved uh, chocolate fudge brownie. Uh, we, we worked with um, a company – in Yonkers, uh, Grayston Bakery, and, and they had been baking uh, lots of cakes and tarts, uh, desserts, and delivering them to, to uh, people around New York, Yonkers area. Um, and we, we tried to uh, convey to them that we needed these very small brownies, uh, quarter-inch thick, uh, inch by inch square, something like that. And they're like, well, we don't know how to make those. So I went down to Yonkers, and uh, the only available time was from about 11 at night till 6 in the morning. Um, and of so course. We it's, a, made, it's a bakery. Yeah. So we, we made these brownies uh, for like two or three nights running, and we made about 30 different batches until we got something that worked. And, and the only instructions uh, – we, we got the taste to, to be correct and we got the texture to be correct. And, and then I told them, I said, 
we want to be able to pour these brownies out of a box um, into the ice cream. And they need to be frozen, but they need to pour out of the box like cornflakes. And they said, oh, okay. Uh, and I said, so they, they need to be frozen. So, <laughs> so the problem was that these guys didn't have any technology. They had a walk-in freezer and they had speed racks, which hold the, the sheet pans. And they would bake these brownies on the sheet pans, cut them with, by hand with like pizza cutters. And then they would throw the, the whole rack into the freezer for an hour until it was vaguely frozen. And then they'd put it in a box and then they would, um, put those boxes into a, a frozen truck. And eventually they got a couple trucks worth and they sent them up here to Ben and Jerry's. Well, Ben and Jerry were all excited. They said, let's get one of these boxes and we'll have a, like a ribbon cutting and we'll pour it into the fruit feeder and, and it'll pour out like cornflakes, but chocolate fudge brownie flakes. I said, that sounds great. So, uh, they did this. They opened up the box and they, you know, pulled aside the plastic wrap and, and then they poured and instead of flakes of chocolate fudge brownie coming out, a solid 30 pound brownie <laughs> fell out of the box because what ended up happening was they put these brownies into, keep going, into a freezer. And they were still moist, and they all froze Together. solid. Oh. And so their freezer was about 25 degrees above zero. Our freezer here was minus 20 degrees. And so when they took them from their freezer to this freezer, they froze solid. Oh. And we had to get people with stainless steel hatchets to break these <laughs> apart for two weeks straight because and i felt pretty responsible for frozen is not necessarily frozen peter lind primal ice cream uh, therapist ben and jerry's we gotta go thank you very much for joining us thank you we are back I'm Kevin Ellis. That was fun talking to Peter Lynn about the old days making ice cream at Ben & Jerry's. We're going to switch to music because on Friday, September 8th, uh, Capital City Concerts is going to be at the Barry Opera House and the internationally renowned pianist Jeffrey Chappell is going to be there. And we have the uh, boss of Capital City Concerts, Karen Kevra, with us on the line. Karen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's it's fun to be called the boss. That's a first. Well, you know, you've been in, Mont in, in Vermont for so long, and so have I, and I swear I don't think we've ever laced, uh, laid eyes on each other, and we still are not because you, you're on the phone, but we will do that soon enough. Uh, tell us about the Flood Relief Benefit Concert with Jeffrey Chapel on Friday, September 8th. Sure. Um well, we had our 24th season of Capital City Concerts planned months ago, and the opening concert by Jeff Chappell 
was scheduled for actually September 9th. It was supposed to happen at the Unitarian Church, but when the flood happened, we had to switch gears. And, you know, I was, I was quite upset about that because, you know, we had had time off because of the pandemic uh, when the church wasn't open and it felt like, oh, here we go again. We can't have our concert in the church. But I thought, well, maybe we can make some lemonade here. Uh, Jeffrey Chappelle is a an absolute world-class pianist. And though the church piano in Montpelier at the Unitarian Church is, is a fine piano, it isn't the caliber of the piano that they have at the Barry Opera House, which is a nine-foot Steinway Concert Grand, which truly is the kind of piano that Jeff should be doing a program like this on. So I called the Opera House thinking, we're not going to be able to afford this. And I talked with Kurt there, and he immediately said, we want to work with you and we'll pretty much match what you typically pay for rent. So here we are. We've moved the concert up a day. It's happening on Friday, September 8th. It will be at the Barry Opera House. There'll be an incredible piano. There's lots and lots of seating, comfortable seats, air conditioning if we need it. So in the end, it's kind of worked out to be, I think, a wonderful thing. And the idea of turning this into a a flood relief concert really uh, originated with an idea from Jeff Chappelle. Uh, And he wrote to me as soon as he heard about the flooding. Uh, And if you don't mind, I was thinking I could read a little bit of the of the message that he sent me. Please do. So he wrote, When I saw the aerial images of downtown Montpelier, I pointed at one flooded street after another in disbelief, thinking, I have walked there and there and there. Where I have walked was a town that I fell in love with immediately when I arrived to give concerts in 2000. Since then, there have been so many years, so many concerts, so many friends and memories The people there have always welcomed me with enormous appreciation and support. Now it's my turn to show appreciation and support by dedicating this concert to them. So he's actually donating his performance, playing for free, so that we can raise as much funds as possible, 100% of ticket proceeds going to flood relief. Uh, Wow. Uh, Tell us about Jeff Chappelle and how did you meet him? Sure. Um, well, Jeff Chappelle is um, a pianist of, of real stature. Um, I think his biggest claim to fame happened early in his career when he was 24 years old. The phone rang one day, and it was the manager of the Baltimore Symphony calling to say the great pianist Claudio Arau has just canceled his performance. Can you fill in today? <sighs> And he said, well, can I go, you know, can I go play through it? And they said, nope, we need an answer. And he realized he would kick himself for the rest of his life if he didn't do it. So he substituted for Claudio Arau, uh, Brahms' uh, piano, second piano concerto, on four hours' notice to great acclaim. Um, and that, that really kind of, um, you know, set his career off in an amazing way. I met him in 2000 when the pianist Michael Arnowit came up with this uh, project, the Millennium Music Concert, uh, Millennial Music Series. It was a, it was kind of a survey of music over the last millennium, and it went on for about a week. And he scheduled me to perform with Jeff 
Um, I had never met him before, and I thought it was a little odd. I knew plenty of other pianists, but uh, I performed a fairly simple piece with Jeff, and I could tell that he was a really fine pianist, but I didn't know quite how good he was. So Jeff was scheduled to play on another concert, which was all of the Chopin ballads, and he was first on the program. I went to, to that concert to listen, and I sat down in the audience and Jim Lowe, the uh, arts critic for the Times Argus, came over and sat down next to me, and we had a little small talk, and I said, I'm here to check out Jeff Chappell to see if I want to hire him to play on my concert series on Capital City Concerts. Right away, the program started, and Jeff came out first and played, and about a minute into it, Jim leaned over and he said, have you made up your mind yet? (laughs) (laughs) I was blown away. Uh, And so that... That became, that was my first contact with Jeff, and we have become friends and colleagues. We perform frequently together, have every year, and Jeff is a regular performer in in our 24 seasons of Capital City Concerts. I think there's only one season when he hasn't played. People really love him. Uh, He's an extraordinary pianist, and the program that he's doing is, wow, you couldn't ask for a better program. It's like a Vladimir Horowitz. Carnegie Hall style concert. Well, I'm way above my way below my pay grade here. He will perform a program including Mozart's Fantasy and Fugue in C major, Beethoven's Opus 109, Chopin's Chopin's Adante Spianato and Gran Polonese Brillante and Samuel Barber's Piano Sonata. Uh, I know that means a lot to people in your field. Why don't you explain some of that? Oh, sure. Um, I think this is the kind of concert you should go to if you love concerts and go all the time, but maybe particularly if you've never been to a classical music concert or a piano recital, you will have your socks knocked off. Uh, when, when Jeff and I first talked about what he might play, but I typically say to performers who are doing you know, something like this, a solo recital is just play what you want to play because what you want to play will be what you play best. But I said, but do you think you could do the Barber Piano Sonata? Uh, and wow, it would be great if you could do Beethoven's Opus 109 Sonata. So the Beethoven was someone who wrote a lot of piano sonatas. He wrote 32, and this Opus 109 Sonata is... Uh, from the set of the very last three that he wrote. And it's my favorite. It has um, four movements. And the final movement, I think, is is really worth uh, highlighting. It's a, a set of theme and variations, and it has a theme which starts it and which also ends it that is one of the most moving melodies you will ever hear. Uh, and the the arc of the piece, of course, you know, it starts with a simple melody, and then variations are just, you know, sort of spiced up versions of that. And finally, it sort of cascades down back into the original melody, and it's it's incredibly beautiful and powerful. Uh, if well, it's a piece you should hear before you die. Same can be said for Samuel Barber's Piano Sonata, which is. One of the great piano sonatas ever written, 20th century 
sonatas, and it includes a fugue. And, and I didn't know this. Jeff pointed this out to me. The, wor- the word fugue is derived from the word fugitive, the idea that at the beginning you hear a melody alone, and then it sort of runs away, and it's chased by a second melody and a third and a fourth and a fifth. And this, this happens in the final movement of the Barber Sonata, where you hear this melody, and right away it sticks with you, and you, you hear it sort of turned upside down. You hear it stretched out. You hear it compressed. Uh, it's this virtuoso tour de force, and uh, Jeff's performed it two other times on, on our series, and he never fails to bring the house down I think it's also worth mentioning that this sonata was commissioned in 1947 by Irving Berlin and Richard Rogers. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it, it, and now I gave you short shrift on your, uh, on the intro because, uh, I, I want to give your proper title. You're the founder and the artistic director of Capital City Concerts. Uh, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of the history of that. Well, sure. Um, it started conveniently in 2000, so it was easy to keep track of, <laughs> of which season we're in. Uh, and it really started because of my relationship with my teacher and mentor, Louis Moise, who was one of the founders of the Marlboro Music Festival. Uh, he was also on the faculty of the Paris Conservatory. Uh, I met him in, I think it was 1996, and it completely changed my life and in some ways changed the lives of, of those in, in Montpelier because uh, we became so close that, that he and his wife decided to leave Westport, New York, uh, you know, on the other side of the, of the lake and move to Montpelier. And he was the one who encouraged me to invite my friends to come and have concerts in Montpelier. So he was really the guiding light and the inspiration behind Capital City Concerts. And he, in fact, used to be involved coaching our rehearsals and and more or less uh, holding court. Right. Karen, uh, tell us about the history of Capital City Concerts. It's been going on for a long time. Yeah, it has. Um, well, we're coming up on our – this is our, our 24th season – uh, and we typically do between about three and five concerts a year. Uh, and, you know, as I, I mentioned before the break, I was encouraged by my teacher, Lily Moise, to invite, invite my friends to come and play. And one of the wonderful things about starting off with a few friends who, who would come and play is that those friends have friends and then those friends become your friends and, uh, and so on. So we've had, oh gosh, so many wonderful musicians over the years. I think of uh, the Paris Piano Trio, which is a, a group of three guys, a, a violinist, a cellist, and a pianist who are three of the top musicians in, in Paris, were uh, members of the faculty at the Paris Conservatory, regular performers on the series. We've had Eugene Drucker from the Emerson String Quartet, um, the Borromeo String Quartet from Boston, uh, performs regularly, uh, and for concerts we have coming up this year past this first one with Jeff Chappelle, we have returning Ed Aaron, who is a, a cellist, I think it's fair to say, on the level of Yo-Yo Ma. 
and his wife, Jiwon Park, a wonderful pianist, they'll be here for our, our Bach concerts in, uh, in October. Wow. Uh, what caused you all those years ago to start this thing? Well, I was living in Vermont. My son was a little boy, and I was committed to raising him here, but there just weren't the kind of performing opportunities that that I wanted. So, you know, as Louis Moise said to me, invite your friends and people will come. And that's what happened. And it, it seems as though people have come to trust that the concerts are are going to be very great. Uh, people say often that they can't believe that in a little town like Montpelier, they can attend the kind of concert that you would hear at Carnegie Hall, but it is absolutely at that level. Uh, and we, you know, we do what we can to keep our ticket prices affordable. In fact, for this concert with Jeff Chappelle on September 8th, uh, tickets start at $5. It's a kind of pay as you can sort of thing. We will not turn anyone away. We want this to be as inclusive as possible and probably also worth mentioning that you you can buy tickets in advance through our website but there will also be tickets available at the door okay uh five dollars that's that's gonna get me to go there that's uh, uh that's fantastic <laughs> well again we want anyone who wants to come to come uh it, it is a fundraising concert for flood relief so you know we would ask that folks be as generous as as they can, but if five dollars is all you can afford, then pay five dollars. And if you can't afford that, just come. We won't turn anyone away. Uh, There's been such incredible generosity of spirit with regard to setting up this concert. You know, it actually, I think of DEV and how kind and helpful everyone has been there to help promote it. Uh, Kurt at the Barry Opera House, who's bent over backward to help out, and Cindy who works there too. Um, many of our sponsors, Bill Herbst, who is helping to sponsor this concert and uh, a new sponsor, Kwasnick Family Dental has been incredibly generous. You know, what a, what a horrible thing we've been through with this flooding. It's really one of the worst things you can imagine happening, but it seems to be bringing out the best in people. So we thought we'll extend that, generosity of spirit as well so that's what we're doing oh boy that's generous uh you're right it is bringing out incredible stories like this and um capital city concerts barry opera house 7 30 september 8th the pianist jeffrey chappelle five dollars at the door uh reserve ahead of time capitalcityconcerts.org Karen, what else do we need to know about Capital City Concerts? I noticed that uh, you're not only at the Barry Opera House. You, you you do concerts at the Unitarian Church in Montpelier and the Cathedral of St. Paul in Burlington, among others. You move around. Yeah, we bounce around a bit. Uh, the Unitarian Church really is our home, and whenever we can, that's, that's where we have the concerts. Our audience is incredible. Uh, and it's really the reason why musicians are clamoring to come back. Everybody wants to come back because the audience is incredibly appreciative and they get it. There's, there's a sort of thing that happens, uh, you know, at the ends of concerts or, or certain pieces where there'll be a kind of a, a collective 
gasp in a moment where something you know really beautiful has happened or or the way in which the <laughs> the crowd is up on their feet and you know it has a little bit of a quality of a of a rock concert sometimes but it's it's really really wonderful uh Karen we look forward to this and thank you so much for coming on uh Capital City Concerts with Jeffrey Chappelle to benefit flood relief uh, it's September 8th, 7.30, Barry Opera House. Get your tickets at capitalcityconcerts.org or just show up at the door and pay what you can. As I like to say to everybody going into their coffee shops or wherever, just round up to the nearest dollar because that's the difference between your coffee shop mm-hmm. being there or not being there and Capital City Concerts being there or not be there. So thank you for joining us. Oh, You're welcome. And just a quick shout out to the especially the Montpelier businesses who've supported us over the years. We're, we're really glad we can give back to them. The, the um, uh, proceeds for this concert will actually be distributed equally between Montpelier Live and Capstone's program, which I actually learned about listening to your show several weeks ago. So thanks for that. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on, and good luck with the show. Thanks. Bye. And that is our show for today. My thanks to our guests, Peter Walk. Peter Lind, Karen Kevra, and, of course, uh, the late Dr. Martin Luther King, who you heard a clip of his I Have a Dream speech earlier to open the show, and everyone else who came after him. If you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic, drop us a line. The show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com. And, of course, you can listen live to the show. I am here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow me. My podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issues we deal with on this show. I'll be back today's Wednesday. I'll be back Friday uh, with a long list of guests. Uh, we're going to talk to Mark Redmond, the CEO of Spectrum Family Youth Services, who's experimenting uh, in his work with homeless uh, youngsters. He's experimenting with direct cash payments to those youngsters uh, to help them out of poverty. Uh, we might go back on the road, as we have been in Montpelier, Barry, and other places. As always, we talk politics in Vermont and the country and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered by Danny McGivrigan, and all the folks at WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Friday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.